Nightlife with Philip Clark on ABC Radio. Yes, are today's young adults worse off than their parents? It's a perennial debate, no matter what generation you're from, perhaps. And in that, uh, in 2023, that question has never been so hotly contested. There are cries to the uh, millennial generation to stop buying avocado toast and other, uh, I'm sure, to millennials' puerile observations about their lot. And then even louder cries to baby boomers to stop whining about your negative gearing and your massive superannuation balance. Of course, all, all these examples on both ends of the argument are exaggerated, but there is, with the rising cost of living, almost non-existent wage growth and inflation through the roof, problems, particularly for young people who are not well situated. Alison Pennington's an economist, uh, also an advisor to the government, says the ideas of the Aussie fair go has disintegrated with millions of young people stuck on the hamster wheel of insecure work crammed in the share houses paying off boomer mortgages. Not to pull her punches. In a new book called Bluntly Gen Eft, you can fill that in, how young Australians can reclaim their uncertain future. She describes how the most educated generation in Australian history stands to be the first generation worse off than their parents. Now, that's a huge concern, not only for the young people themselves, of course, but for their parents and possibly for us as a society generally. I mean, do you worry about your adult or soon or soon to be adult children ever being able, for example, to get into the housing market or to find sustainable, secure and well-paid work? And are you yourself shocked simply at the cost of living that 20-somethings now have to deal with, given all those pressures as well? Are economic conditions tougher than they were in the early 1980s. Alison Pennington, welcome back to Nightlife. Good evening. Uh, well done in the book. It's, uh, it's a pretty searing read. <laughs> you think people born after 1980 live in a harsher economic environment than their parents. Mm. Why? For a multitude of reasons. I think Australia became a harsher, more individualistic, each for their own society. And underpinning that process was government basically stepping away from providing opportunities and investing in people so that they could realise that opportunity over their lifetimes. And where the, the chickens are coming home to roost. We're, this is what privatisation and deregulation, um, creating markets for basics of like education and healthcare, this is what it looks like. It, and, of course, housing, you know, the, the, the hmm. most important commodity of them all. Um, if we create markets out of these things, it, it means that the first people to enter into those markets are always going to be on the arse end. Hmm. And that's, in a nutshell, that's, that's why it's harsher. Yeah. Uh, the, the, uh, we, we can't talk about all the ideas in the book because there are lots of them and they're very interesting as well. well uh, I'd like to talk about jobs and housing, but w- one, of the, one, of the, one of the points in your book, and it's, a, it's perhaps an overarching point, is, is what you're saying is that we were, sold, we were sold proposals about what will make us wealthier that are simply not true. We were, sold, we were told things about uh, how the economy works to our benefit that are simply not true. And we're, what we're doing now is reaping the rewards of that. Well, they're not rewards. They're, mm. they're rewards for some people, but they're only at the top end. I think we, had, we lived this lie, and a lot of that was based on constant house price inflation and this mm. idea that if you get in, um, you'll always be you know, happy to see your house price increase because that means your wealth increases. And, you know, what's underpinning that is it's a, it's a ticking time bomb. At some point, 
a large volume of people by, you know, pure arithmetic are going to be unable to access that. So it's not just youth, it's also, you know, lower class, underclass working people. Um, And there are destabilising impacts. You know, once we start creating high levels of inequality for a country like Australia, which defined itself based on being egalitarian against the the British Empire's very rigid class system Mm. and fought very, you know, over generations to create something that was more equal for everyone... Um, we now have a system where we have the return of a feudal-like <laughs> inheritocracy, um, mm. which is incredibly destabilising. You know, inequality is bad for, for economic growth. It's bad for um, inclusion. It's, you know, it's destabilising broadly. We've always had rich people and we've always had poor people, and uh, that's always been the case. But all politicians anywhere at any time have always realised that if you let those gaps get too big, society itself becomes unmanageable. Mm. Are we headed that way? We're in it. This Mm. is what the inflation crisis is. This is what happens when you allow private interests to make calls about how to produce basic goods and services for everyone and have monopolies. I mean, this is, I mean, it's it's more complex than that, Mm. but broadly it's what happens when government steps away from providing the things that people need. And so in the case of Australia, we have you know, several very large monopolies in the production of essentials, food in particular, um, also energy, and we're basically, you know, in a stranglehold and they can keep hiking up prices unless there's some sort of intervention. Uh, So I I think what the inflation crisis shows is uh, what happens when government steps back. And in that sense, it's, it's, I didn't write the book at the time of when this crisis hit, but now there's kind of a two birds, one stone moment where we can... Mm look at how does government start reinvesting in people and rebuild the fair go, invest in our local supply chains, in our local materials, um, and invest in local people. Because we do have this curious situation, don't we, at the moment, where the Reserve Bank is saying we've got to try and avoid a wage price spiral. And they're using language which people are very familiar with because we've been told this for several generations now that wages get too high, push prices up and around and around we go, and that's, that's, that's all bad for everyone. Well, that may well be the case, but... There doesn't seem to be any evidence that wages are pushing anything because wages are growing at certainly less than the rate of inflation. So what's going on? It's There's a few things going on. Uh, first of all, I think it's political posturing. I, I think the desire to look back to the 1970s when we had you know over 50% unionisation rates and people were out on strike and wages were chasing uh, inflation. Mm-hmm. There's a, because those social forces, those things don't exist, it's kind of like the need to create a boogeyman that it isn't there. And uh, we also are reaching this interesting point in history where independent central banking, which has been built into our economic model, which is based on, you know, inflation targeting, Mm -hmm. there's a bit of an identity crisis for central banks because inflation is sky high. The only tool they have is to hike up rates and they're causing a lot of pain for homeowners and, and renters um, whose housing costs also go up. And uh, right, like the the elephant in the room is that changing interest rates isn't going to fix this crisis. Hmm. Yeah, and I think a lot of, I mean, I think there's a lot of feeling at the moment that mortgage holders are saying, why do we have to cop all this? Hmm. We seem to be, we seem to be, because of they're the most obvious recipients of the pain of increased interest rates. They're saying, why should we cop this? We didn't cause it, mm. oh, it's, which they didn't. Of course not. It's a, it's, 
I've I've met a number of workers who have taken on second jobs purely to meet their mortgage payments now, and mm. um, it's not sustainable. There has to be some point of intervention, and you know we we hope that inflation starts to tick down, but that relies on us hoping that large producers step back from this price hike war. Mm. Um, a war against us, uh, the other side of workers who aren't doing nothing. They're not even putting up a fight. So, mm. No, let's talk about jobs. Brett says, Phil, it's often crafted lately as a Gen X versus boomers debate, which mm. is a wrong dichotomy. What we see is the long-term effects of economic rationalism post-Howard Reagan Thatcher. We live in a post-economic rationalist world, and we were recently told that younger generations were politically agnostic. Well, surprise, surprise, it doesn't really matter. Vote with consciousness and awareness. It matters. Let's talk about jobs. I mean, one of the, one of the strengths of your book, I think, is that you it's not just a rant, <laughs> although that's permissible in these, uh, this day and age. It's, um, it's a pretty uh, careful and forensic uh, joiner of dots with numbers and so on. Tell me about jobs. What's happened to jobs? You say the jobs... We, we have seen the, the, the route of, of secure, sustainable work in favour of insecure, low-paid, fly-by-night, gig economy type work. Mm. Tell us about that. I guess I'd, I'd start by saying I know for young people a long time, for a long time jobs and job security and unions have been really unsexy and so there's this, I think part of a higher education level for this generation has been to look at what their parents did, the nine to five, and say, well, I don't want to do that. I want to mm. be more flexible. I want to do different things. And, of course, at the same time we had all these big changes in our labour regulations. We had manufacturing was shipped off. We got all this explosion in insecure part-time casual jobs of which young people were coming into. And so all these economic changes were happening at the same time that they were not able to get a, a proper hold, foothold into the job market. And I think now it's starting to dawn more and more on young people that actually, you know, a decent job and job security doesn't mean you're a slave to the boss, but it means that you have some security in your life to build and including, you know, join a union and actually help to be a part of improving the quality of that job. But you're saying too that you're saying that work's changed too. You're saying that, mm. that, that it's people are, people are going to university and doing degrees, and the universities are saying to them, if you do these things, then you'll get a job and you'll be you'll be doing you know you'll be doing solid, secure things. Now, look, it's it's it's. It is just a fact that if you go to university, you do increase your chances of getting a job. It, it's just a fact. Mm. But however, you say, yeah, but what's the job? And a lot of the jobs that the, the tertiary education institutions suggest are out there aren't. Yeah, the the bright shiny brochures when they when they sell mm. their degrees, they say this de- degree will lead to these jobs. And if you look at vacancies in those jobs, they almost don't exist. What where we have vacancies now is in jobs that actually about half of them require degrees and about half of them don't, um, like in you know, age care and uh, education aids and professional services is something that is, is going to be you know, growing the next five years. But the, the point is that when universities were, became detached from and their, and their offerings became detached from what had to be provided and mm. what was actually available, we had this big expectations mismatch created and now we have, consequently, because there have been less and less good quality full-time career-building jobs for young people, we've got people with PhDs who are, you know, baristas. And I love baristas and that's a skilled job and they should get paid more. But 
there's that's not the correct application or space for them to apply their skills and, mm. and to spread their wings. But they've also they've they've always been baristas, haven't they? I mean, they've always been people. You make a lot of the point of the your point that you know there's a a lot of these jobs are in hospitality and 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 so on. But these jobs have always been there. They've always been a bit insecure. They've always been relatively low paid, haven't they? You're saying that there are more of them now. There's there, this period of insecure work growth is is taking us back to pre, you know, nineteenth century union battles that actually helped to create quality good jobs. We're we're looking at, you know, gig work is mm. essentially a, an old form of of employment before we actually created some civility around the experience of work, um, and the the level of precarity we have now is. Is, has exploded compared to, for young people, compared to their parents' generation. Um, what you have is the, the massive increase in services jobs. We've had um, almost 1.2 million jobs just in retail and hospitality growth in the last decade. Um, and you have uh, the, the the junior wages system and you have uh, increasing, you know, the, the, the loss of union roles in those same new industries that are rising. So you have a combination of industries changing and an inability of unions to get workers and to help them to create better jobs in those sectors. And so young people are actually at the crux of those decade-long shifts in, in industry mm. change. What are, what are, when you say better jobs, what, what are you talking about? What, what's, a better, what's a better job? I mean, in the hospitality industry, for example, a big employer, mm. what's a better job? I mean, it's necessarily... It's necessarily gig-based, isn't it? Not at all. I mean, if we look to Europe, um, in in Germany, they have an incredibly sophisticated uh, skills and job system where hospitality has, you know, 60 different course options uh, of which is considered to be a noble choice to make as a young person and it's linked into a, you know, quality job offering. Of course, the, the elephant in the room for Australia, because we fuel our cafes and our restaurants on, on cheap youth and migrant labour is that if we start paying people properly and allow people to build careers and because there are so many passionate people, young people want to be in hospitality, but they get the middle finger from all of their the conditions in which they have to work in. So I think there's a lot of opportunity in Australia actually to, to upgrade how we see hospitality and how we view people who do that work. Mm. Okay, so you're you're saying you're saying that these jobs should be better paid and should offer better career structures. Mm. So if you want to be a waiter, then that's an okay career choice because you'll be able to raise a family on that. Typically, um, that prof- that particular role would be part of a career progression. I think mm. there are so many different jobs you can do in hospitality, and so that's mm. where career structures can get really creative and give people different opportunities but give them at least a secure basis to do their job rather than getting sacked after one week and rather than thinking well you you haven't got a shift next week correct Mm. yeah and i think people should be able to raise families and on a hospitality wage Mm. well Well, they are already but they're struggling (laughs) well they do already exactly one three hundred eight hundred triple two is the number uh our guest is alison pennington an economist who's written a book called generation f which she argues pretty cogently for uh, a view that Australia has has failed young people, that young people don't have the stake in the economy they used to have and are unlikely to. Uh, have we oversold the benefits of education to young people, do you think? It is closely aligned with the phenomenon of credentialism, which mm. is when you 
give when you detach the provision of education, including skills, we've had a massive explosion of privatisation in the vet sector as well, and you tell people who are struggling to find work, you just need to get another qualification and improve your, your you know, competition in the market. Um, then we get people accruing debts and superfluous qualifications. And I think in the, for the case of young people, hmm. it has been oversold. And if you, if you look at what happened after the GFC, if you were to chart the decline of full-time jobs, young people in full-time jobs, with the rise of postgraduate uh, study, they they are you know have an inverse relationship um, because what happened, um, including for myself, mm. uh, once you kind of put your head out and you have a look at the wilderness and you see there's no prospect, no no employer is going to invest in you, uh, train you up, give you a decent full time job, then you go back to study and you think how do I improve my chances of getting that, and that's where um, a lot of you know universities started increasing their masters offerings, uh, postgraduate you know coursework, not just by research. Um, and I, I loved my, my postgraduate education. It was life-changing. Mm. Um, but I met so many young people um, at the same time who were not sure why they were doing it, but they just thought they should just keep going. So there's, what's happened in the last few decades is this, this warehousing, basically. What do we do with all these people when we can't put them into productive jobs? They get warehoused in you know, universities and education places and, you know, those 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 organisations make a lot of money out of that warehousing mm. process too. Mm. Wise has texted in, and, a lot, and he's not alone in this, suggesting the trouble is young people do not want to have a go. That's mm. the problem. It's a motivational issue. Some part of your book actually might agree, seems to agree with that, yeah. that young people don't want to have a go because they don't see what the reward is going to be. Yeah. So is that it? I have got a few angles on this. I I grew up but with a strong with a strong work ethic. It came from a very working class conscious family where mm. work was seen as a source of pride and hard work was how you defined um, your contribution. Not entirely, but it was a big part of it. But the idea you were you were sold the idea that there is a direct equation between hard work and success. No, I, I'd say I my life has been straddling uh, two truths, and one truth is that my hard work has allowed me to contribute in the way I have, and I'm very lucky. Um, but the other second truth is the luck, and I I know many people of um, just as good a capacity and mm. fire in the belly who couldn't get out of, you know, structural, in this case, structural poverty, violence, um, you know born into families where they didn't get that support. But what I, I do think has happened is there's like a, there is a mass psychological distress that's set in for young people and particularly for young people who come from families who are successful in their yeah. eyes. They've got two, perhaps both their parents are in professional work, they own their home, maybe they're in another, and they see that they're going backwards and for them they don't have the tools to pull themselves up. So I guess in a nutshell, if you're if you're from the bottom, there's only one way up. Mm. Um, but for a large number of particularly middle and you know higher income young people, they see themselves going backwards, and they that's stupefying. They 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 don't have the tools to to kind of you know put on the boxing gloves and give it a go. Mm. Okay, well I want to talk about housing in a minute um, as well because this is obviously a, one of those key topics as well. Um, calls one three hundred eight hundred triple two lines are free. Matthew from Griffith. Hi, Matthew. How are you going? Not bad. You're a farmer. 
Yeah, I'm a farmer. Uh, we're looking to start at the moment. And mm. if you talk to anyone from regional Australia in the last two years, we can never find enough people. For the last two years, I've advertised jobs, and we just don't get Australians, you know, applying for them. They pay 35 to 40 bucks an hour, and you know, there's plenty of jobs. They're just not coming out to apply for. So they're they're paying at least seventy five percent to one hundred percent more than the than the basic wage, but uh, as it were, than than that. But they're still not they're still not doing it. No, like agriculture as a whole is is suffering from mm. not enough um, places at universities, but also the universities tell us there's not enough people applying to the, the the courses there either. So it's this yin and the yang between. You know, the works there, the, the higher sophisticated works there as well with um, the, the new uh, IoT and that sort of stuff coming into farming and, mm-hmm. you know, it's a big avenue for people to come in. What do you work. reckon the difference is, um, Matthew, between what you're experiencing now and what, I don't know how long you've been in this, been on the farm, but what used to be? It used to be we would get young people from smaller farms coming coming from south to north to work on the bigger farms, mm-hmm. but the farms from down south have got bigger, so that doesn't happen anymore, and we have these, you know, what they call backpackers, but some of those backpackers are highly skilled, and they come to Australia, they'll travel the east coast for harvest, and they'll walk away with 60 or 70 grand over six months. Mm-hmm. Like, the money's there if they want to earn it. Mm. Yep, okay, thanks, Matthew. Um, Alison? Oh, I think there's a number of things going on. Uh, housing is a key issue. Transport for people who could be a good fit for a job out in agriculture out in a region, they need somewhere to live and we've got a housing crisis that's most pronounced in the regions right now mm-hmm. um, and pushed through the climate uh, climate events. I think there's a cultural issue going on for young people. They've been told that to ascend and to mobilise is to get a degree and become a professional. And what's been left behind is uh, we've got a trades and skills apprenticeships pipeline that's completely dismantled. <laughs> Not enough mm. people have gone into trades and anyone who's tried to get a tradesperson will know that it's very hard. Um, and I think ag must, is part of that, that same uh, trend, which is just there's a cultural, uh, not, a, not a distaste, but perhaps a, an alienation, like an, an, an for, for, for young people who are mostly in the big cities, they wouldn't know how to go about taking that big that big leap of faith, really. Mm, mm. Yeah, most of us, that's the thing. <laughs> most of us do live in cities. Mm. Tian from Fairfield. G'day, Tian. Hello. How are you? I'm well. What's your, 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 what's your situation? Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a semi, semi-youthful person, I guess. I'm 30. <laughs> mm. um, I did want to... I, I just wanted to thank um i believe it's allison allison yeah yeah um for somewhat validating the struggles i'm having uh, sort of my career crisis that i'm having at the moment um i'm a i'm a driver um but i i i've given in to this pressure to uh, go back to study go to uni now there's some there's some uh, complicating factors that I've, i've got adhd um, and I, I happen to love healthcare, which does require uni. There's no way about that. Um, but uh, at the moment, I'm a driver in healthcare, and I actually really love it. And it annoys me that I've succumbed to this pressure to go back to uni when I, 
like in my head, I, I'm not actually at all worried about being a driver for the rest of my life, even even if it does mean one day my job's obsolete. Mm. Uh, but yeah. in other words, what you're saying is you'd be happy to do it if it was if it was secure and sustainable. Yeah, yeah. I I, I think there is a big part of me that wants to contribute more. Um, uh, yeah, I think that's affected uh, affected by. Um, yeah, this thinking that you're you're not worthwhile unless you have a bachelor's degree. Mm. Mm, mm. Yeah, yeah, so. okay. Mm. Yeah, I think part of um, what the call is also experiencing is over time, as employers have cut costs on their labour, they've stopped investing in training on the job. Mm. And in the past, someone like him could have got the training he needed or the skills he needed outside of the bachelor degree format. Uh, but over time employers have tried to reduce their risk and they push those costs onto onto the worker. So they take on all the skilling costs before they come into the job. And I think that's one of the things that drives credentialism, just, you know, people going back to uni and getting more and more qualifications. Mm. John from the Blue Mountains. Hi, John. Hi, how's it going? Well. Uh, I have a couple of things to say. Mm. Uh, I'm now 65 and I've worked in the education system, tertiary education system, and also in a professional environment. Mm-hmm. However... I think there's a couple of things that are happening at the same time. Education has become a no longer an institution but a business and a collegiate system where people would actually learn and uh, develop skills while learning has now become purely transactional and people um, learn for a fee and there are certain expectations that you uh, have as you're studying for a fee and that creates a certain type of environment. Mm. The other thing is that there are a whole lot of positions, you know, people bringing from over the place, you know, when they say, oh, we can't get workers here, we can't get workers there. The system, the model which is being provided is a model which is not sustainable. If you cannot pay adequate wages to the people that are actually working for you to provide an environment where they can grow and maintain a family or whatever, is a model which is not sustainable. You're going to be relying on transient workers which do not want to stay in a particular position for a long time because it's economically unsustainable for them. So it's, it has to be targeted in a variety of ways. Hmm. Profits have to be um, factored in in a particular way which will allow growth and development for the people in that position and a management so that both the owner of a business and the person that's working profit in a joint way it sounds like a it's i'm not being communist but a socialist ethos where people actually care for the community that's going on around them while providing work where everybody profits from it and maybe it's a a dream that is hard to achieve but we had it and it's gone away Mm. yeah alison yeah i I think that's the the loss that's Mm. being and the grief that is being felt actually across the nation and for young people they're learning about how it could have been Hmm. I think look, I think you have put your finger on 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 that feeling in the in the book quite profoundly the grief actually that society is maybe not not set up to actually give you the rewards that that society said it was going to give to you. Hmm. Can we talk about housing for a bit because that's a that, that's a a huge issue. I mean, one of the I suppose the themes of your book is that we've lost sight of the idea that housing should be to house people and we've created it as a kind of investment vehicle and Mm. it's become a wealth creation vehicle which if you look at you know if you look at real estate sections in in popular media that's that's probably the case Um, and it's unscrambling this though is going to be difficult isn't it i i think it's akin to weaning off a drug because it's so central to 
Australia's sense of self. Mm. Um, it's built into the ideals of mobility. If you look at the statistics, young people themselves, 70% say that owning a home is a goal in their life. So this is... Even though it is, for most of them, it's, not, it, it's no longer possible. Is it or not? You, your, your numbers in your book suggest that it's no longer possible. It's a pipe dream, really. And unless you're born into wealth and you get a pass on and some inheritance or you get assistance with mm. reaching a, a deposit, the, if you want to pull the deposit together for a median unit, not even a house, just a unit, a box in the sky, $120,000. Um, and that's, that's pre-COVID, uh, pre-last, no, that, that's during COVID, but that's prices have gone up since I've written the book. Mm. So you've got to ask, what, for what young person who's out there selling their labour right now because they don't have access to capital from their family, how are they going to put together $120,000 um, if, you know, you wouldn't be you're buying, a minimum you wage wouldn't, You wouldn't buy anything for $120,000 in the cities either. Absolutely not. Mm. Um, and if you, even if you look at young people who are on income support, there's an assets test. So to qualify for income support, you have to always be in poverty. So even for, for those tens of thousands of young people, um, at least on youth allowance, but then hundreds of thousands if you look across JobSeeker as well, it will always be a pipe dream. Hmm. Um, if you look at what happened you know, in the 80s, young people were generally more likely to own a home. Um, there were uh, over 60% of 25 to 34-year-olds. So for your previous caller who was wondering if 30 constituted young, it does. Um, 35 and younger uh, and lower is, is young. Um, and it's from 60% in the 80s, we now have less than 45% of young people owning homes. But that's across the board. If you, if you cut out the bottom 20% of income earners, they, they have fallen by over 40 percentage points of their access to home ownership. And that's one of the largest falls in home ownership in the OECD. So I, I really want to drive home in this book that what, what we're seeing happening in Australia isn't just an, a generational inequality crisis. It's a, a class and income inequality crisis. And it's in part why as well, the generational warfare, it's not useful because we also know that the fastest growing group for homelessness risk is older single women. So this is, um, this is absolutely about income. But what we do have right now are settings pummeling $14 billion worth of subsidies uh, to predominantly high-income older people. And that's just we're just funding inequality right now um, without any proportionate uh, role to play for increasing housing supply, which is what government used to do up until the 70s. They used to build houses and they used to sell them to people for cheap or they would put them in, give them cheap rent through public housing. And what happened after that point is that the settings by which government related to housing completely changed. It stopped its provision and it created essentially a closed shop and it said, all right, we'll draw the line under here. So this is enough supply. Population kept increasing. We increased, you know, temporary migration exploded and, you know, we gave all these subsidies to people to increase the price of their houses. And there's a lot of reasons why that was done. Politically, it's important. Um, it was important to to um, particularly conservative parties because it helped them secure a voter base who were at that point um, the large majority. But what's interesting happening now is, as we saw with the uh, recent election of Daniel Andrews in Victoria, um, we're realising that millennials are actually the, the largest voter base now mm. and younger people are going to increasingly 
um, be able to, I guess, represent their disdain in electoral politics. Doctor, sorry, Alison Pennington, not a doctor. Alison Pennington is our guest, a, a an economist and advisor, uh, and has written a book called Generation Eft about what she says is the uh, is the dearth of opportunity and the. The, the 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 wrongness of message that's been sold to young people and the lack of opportunity that's available. Ray in Perth. G'day, Ray. Hi, how are you going? Not too bad. That's good. Um, look, I completely agree with what Alison was saying. Um, I think as a society, we have become very individualistic and we're also not standing up for our rights as much. You know, um, our parents and our grandparents really fought hard for you know, the basic um, basic wages and, you know, the, the five-day working week and all of these things that we take for granted. And, um, yeah, I honestly think the government has, has just, um, you know, uh, taken all of those rights, slowly taken those rights away from us. Um, and, yeah, it's about time that we, we all, you know, get together and kind of and fight against, you know, these issues because unless we do something like that, um, it's just going to get worse and worse. Um, you know, in countries like Germany, which Alison mentioned earlier, um, you know, they're always out protesting and, you know, and getting together and, you know, getting together in groups to, to fight against things that they believe are wrong. So I think, you know, in Australia, we have become very p- passive and too comfortable, I think, in a way. Mm. Mm. Yep. Okay. Thank you, Ray. Glenn in Parks. Hi, Glenn. Hello. G'day. Yes. Yes, I think Alison is uh, pretty right. Well, everything she said so far, I say, is, is right. I say the chickens are coming home to roost mm. over the last at least four decades of both uh, both sides of governments of, of I mean different political flavors that have slowly well buggered the country. They've, um, different things like allowing all the different banks to to buy each other out. Mm. You, you've got a monopoly. You can't say to me that St George Bank wasn't making a profit or the state bank. Um, You've allowed, they've allowed um, uh, the, the, the monopolisation in the power field. Uh, then different governments take uh, uh, government-owned facilities and, and want to sell them off to private enterprise to take the money to virtually build something else when really they should keep that. Um, uh, my father's 80-something and he said to me at times, you know, these governments are elected to run the corner shop not to sell the assets. Mm. And so many of these different governments take what is uh, assets that belong to the people they've paid for it and, and sell it to uh, other, other uh, big companies and they're only buying it to make a profit and the price goes up. Mm. Yep. Um, yeah. I mean, Alison, there's a, <laughs> there's a point. I mean, you, you, you do mention this in the book, maybe not extensively, but this idea that we're being sold, we have been sold to for a long time, uh, the neoliberal idea, I suppose, that markets will allocate resources to our benefit. Of course, then if you reward uh, successful entrepreneurial people, then you will benefit the reward, you will reap the benefits of their hard work and success. As you say, that actually hasn't worked out that way uh, at, um, at all. But, but also, if you look at the Australia, there is, <laughs> you don't have a, a classical market of many suppliers and many buyers. You have a market of many buyers, but in many cases, very few sellers. In other words, we don't, if not monopolies, near monopolies. Mm, especially in essential services mm. and essential goods, which is where all the inflation is right now. And mm. it's no surprise that we've got uh, oligopolies across, you know, supermarkets, energy, 
um, some in education provision in some ways. I, I think there's there's it's there's no it's not a surprise that this economic model we decided to adopt has led to this inflation problem. And I think that this is the crisis point. As I said, I wrote this book because the crisis was that we had the fair go had disintegrated and we had lost a generation. And now we have that same issue and um, the inflation crisis is knocking on our, do- our door and showing us exactly um, what it's all about. Hmm. One of the things that was interesting in your book too, I thought was, because we've talked about this a lot on the program, and amongst, uh, I suppose, there's a whole range of economists who think who are thinking about you know, what, what's wrong and how do we fix it all. And there's an attractive idea for many called the universal basic income, which is this idea that, well, yes, all this wealth has been created. It clearly hasn't gone uh, to people on wages. And that's we know that that's the case in Australia, that the share of productivity in Australia going to wages as opposed to to profits, corporate profits, is, is way out of whack. In mm-hmm. other words, people at the bottom have not shared equally in the bounty of of the country. And so... For a lot of economists, the way out of this is to say, well, okay, in that case, what should happen is a form of giant welfare so that everybody in the country should be given a basic wage, a a universal basic income, and it would be given without means test to everybody. And on that basic income, you could actually live. Now, it's not as wacky an idea as you think, not you personally, but you, you, the listener, might think, and it has been tried in some some places in, in the world as well because... I mean, in Australia, the idea might be, for example, you would give everybody fifteen or seventeen thousand dollars straight up. Uh, it's pro- it's not enough to live on, but it would go considerable way to helping a lot of people. Uh, you you're not keen on this, are you? You think th- this is just this is basically giving up. This is this is you know this is the last refuge of the coward because what we're saying, what the people who go for that are saying, is we can never make work meaningful or, or equitable. It's. I agree. I think it's a cop out in the way that it's used, and uh, it's 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 an idea that has a lot of purchase among young people. It and does. I, yeah. Mm. It's very much fixed to their disillusionment and mm. an experience of work that isn't meaningful and mm. isn't empowering. So you may as well get paid minimum wage to do something, right? And quite often, the list of jobs that people in who are proponents of universal basic income, they the the jobs they describe that could be included in um, that could be, you know, remunerated through this minimum income support payment are, you know, things like caring jobs and, uh, you know, artists and the kind of work that people don't typically think of as jobs. Mm. But actually there are people who do those jobs and they mm. work really hard and they fight really hard to make them better. Uh, so my, I don't think we can escape work, right? And that's what I think UBI tries to do. It tries to escape employment, escape that world it has to happen. Uh, there will be employers and there will be employees or at least people doing work for people who can tell them to do stuff for them. And it's just about how we organise that. Hmm. Um, I think there's, there is a, some, I'm interested in, in the concept of universal basic income in the sense of a, an income support payment that is stable and high enough for people to live off of. But that's not the principle of UBI. That's hmm. that's more about making our income support system. I, I shouldn't describe it as welfare because it's actually not. The idea of UBI is not welfare. The idea is it's it's a, it's a societal agreement. It's a dividend. It just says, look, you know, if you don't want to work, 
you will you will receive something from the economy anyway. Yeah, and I, I have to add one of the key risks of this proposal also is that it gives the state a large volume of power and any government of the day. Uh, so, as for me, I'm I'm a very I'm an ultra democratic person, and that's why I think unions are so important for rebuilding the fair go. Mm. And, you know, especially for young people to get involved and, and active. And it's good to hear the caller raise, um, you know, the, the passivity of people at the moment. Uh, and the reason why I think unions are important is because they, they decentralise power in um, geographic regions, whether it be a workplace, whether it be across an industry, but it just provides a, more of a buffer for supreme power <laughs> and <laughs> We, we need to be able to hold governments accountable because they have a large volume of tools and weapons at their disposal. Um, and mm. without everyday democratic power of people at the bottom, mm. then it can be what happens to that UBI. It's dropped down to a poverty level in a, in, in a heartbeat. You can stroke of a pen, it's done. That's right. You know? I think a lot of critics also say it allows the government to say, well, your health is not our responsibility. We've given you an income, so you look after it. Exactly. Uh, Private health for everyone. Uh, look, I don't want to talk – No, sorry, I'm not trying to cut the conversation off, but I think it's also fair to observe that in the, in the jurisdictions it's been tried. It has been tried, isn't it? I think in one of the Scando countries it was tried for a bit, uh, not across the whole economy, but in parts of the economy. The results were a bit mixed um, without without any, any any sort of you know clear direction as to whether it would work or not. Uh, can we talk about what – to do about it all. Mm. Uh, what do we do about housing? See, you can't suddenly unwind a system where most, where a huge number of Australians have their wealth invested. You, you say one of the ways forward is a massive and concerted public housing spend. Mm. That'll drive house prices down too, won't it? There will be, we're already seeing adjustment in housing prices. Mm. I say in the book, we're never going to see a collapse like the GFC subprime crisis sort of level. And it's in part uh, because of the number, the, the the level of liabilities that our banks have in mortgages. It's like 60%. It's, mm. it's huge. And the governments can't afford it. No government would survive driving down house prices, would they? No. I mean, you mean politically? No. No. They wouldn't. No. no. But this is, this is why, and I think we are seeing it more with young people, they are shifting their expectations it is possible for a country like Australia with large, you know, resources at its disposal at disposal to create high quality, you know, public and social housing. Mm. Um, if we look at the Scandinavian countries, they have really high levels of public and social housing and people have relationships to housing. They, they, it's their home. There's you know, security of tenancy. Uh, it's cheap. And they don't spend all their time chasing mortgage payments. They have time to live their lives, and I would say evolve more as mm. as people. They can engage in you know the arts and um, times with family and friends. And I think what, what what we need in Australia is a a significant cultural and economic shift. In and housing is actually at, at the heart of of what we do. It's jobs and it's housing and it's housing because even for those convicts who came here in chains, when they were freed, it was on the promise of a little patch of land of their own. And so it's, it's something that's the theft of, of land from Aboriginal people and essentially a free resource given to us to build lives uh, is so built into the Australian consciousness that mm. for young people, I think there's an opportunity to, 
to push forward and campaign for public and social housing and a new relationship to land and housing. It's one of the most powerful political ideas that exist in Australia, the idea that you can own your own home. And that your labour could help you get it. Mm. You know, that was... You're saying that's now a myth. That's, I think, at the heart of the fair go. It is that you can be born of any means, but if you work hard and sell your labour... You will be able to. You should be able to secure a, a good life and raise a family. You could once. You could once, absolutely. I mean, the harvester judgment was world leading, nineteen mm. hundreds, um, which was you know our early union movement fought to, to create the arbitration conciliation system, and that was an order um, by the industrial court that the minimum wage had to be sufficient for, at that point, a male breadwinner to raise a family and live a life with civility, have time for leisure. And uh, it's, this was the 1900s. <laughs> I think for young people that, would, that feels like pretty far away. But it, I, what I argue in the book and what I hope to provoke and inspire people is that we can imagine a, a 21st century modern fair go and I think young people can be at the forefront of, mm. of working to And part of it. that is what you're saying in the book is a shift away in this cultural idea that the, the only store of wealth in Australia and the thing you should aspire to is to store your wealth in a house which has meant that we've got away from the idea of shelter being the purpose of housing in the first place. Exactly and so unsophisticated imagine if we could free up all those billions in resources for real investment mm. in new things. Peter from Bunbury G'day Peter. Good afternoon Bill. Hi. Uh, yeah just a, a bit of a listening conversation that sparked a, uh, something of the past. I could have predicted this 30 years ago Um I was a union organiser and um, we were having difficulty then with the younger generation. Their argument was, why join a union? Because we get it all given to us because we're so good. Mm-hmm. Um, and they left the union movement in droves. One of the people I know worked in a large factory. He was the only union member. And every time he got a wage increase it passed on to everyone else in the factory. Mm. Um, People would come and ask him whether they were getting their um, fair dues under the union award, and he says, well, join the union and find out. Um, And my argument is always this. Name me anything in the last 150 years that has been given freely to workers. Mm. Everything that we get today, sick leave, everything else was fought for, and some people fought with blood and until the younger generation drop their attitude and go back to the fact that unless you unite, you will be exploited, um, we're going to hell in the handbasket. Mm, okay. Thanks, Peter. I mean, just speaking of the way forward and the fair go, we've talked a bit about housing and the need, as you see it, for a concerted and, 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 and big spend on public housing. In jobs, what do you? What is the? What, what's the way forward for a fair go? Is it? Is it what uh, Peter was saying that young people, if they're angry, they need to organise, don't they? Yeah, Does that, that mean they organise in unions? What do they do? So, I think unions are at this point the largest volunteer-based organisations in Australia. Uh, they have over a million members, and it is the most important and powerful way that a working person can connect themselves and their activities in a workplace to bigger power and shape their their broader society. That's what the fair go was, right? It was turning industrial power into political Hmm. policy power. Um, So creating good jobs again, I think, is is a a really key component of what this this new fair go is. It is about letting unions do their job. In Australia, we have 
some of the harshest anti-union laws, um, of which have some have been uh, improved with the recent government secure jobs better pay legislation. Uh, but there's there's still a, a large number of restrictions on what is really bread and butter stuff, just simple ac- economic democracy, um, which exists in other places. I would say for for young workers, um, we also need to keep in mind that there is uh, the onus is also on unions to work out how to reach young people uh, who feel a both a cultural and a um, you know their jobs don't allow them to link into um, working in and joining unions. Um, if you're casual and you're going to be sacked the next week, you know, it's hard to stick your neck out, right? I think it's about expanding our ideas of what we can do on the job. It's about, you know, whether it be reduced working hours. We are due for some reduced working hours since the 1970s. We've had the standard work week, um, four-day work week, public jobs. I think that's the stuff that's going to excite people as well. Uh, in the past, young people got their start by a public sector job, whether it be a graduate program or you know a job in the local council. What's happened in this neoliberal period is governments have stepped away from providing those entry level opportunities. Uh, so it's it's a combination of better frameworks to allow people to fight for a more meaningful job, but then also more good jobs. Actually, the, the sheer number of them has to increase, and I think that has a lot to do with government stepping up. Mm. Mm. All right. Look, there's a lot of thoughts, as I say, in your book. Um, one of the things you're really arguing against, and I think the numbers are pretty incontrovertible, actually, that it is not a case of just getting off your bum and doing it, because structurally you actually can't, unless in many cases you get some sort of outside help. Uh, and that much is is pretty clear. It's uh, Look, it's a feisty book, and it's meant to provoke debate. I'm sure it will. Uh, but Alison, it's been terrific to have you with us. How young Australians can reclaim their uncertain futures? It's called Gen Eft, um, and our guest has been Alison Pennington. Uh, so her solution is to be a communist thug. Great, not says my text. <laughs> uh, no, I don't think that's that's what Alison is suggesting at all. Alison, it's um, uh, thanks for stirring the pot of ideas. It's been terrific to have you in. It's been really great to chat. You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife. You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife.